This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to another episode of A People's Theology. I'm the host of A People's Theology, Mason Meninga. In this episode, I talk with Randy Woodley. Randy is an indigenous theologian, activist, and author of many books, including most recently, Becoming Rooted, 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth. You can get connected with Randy and his work in the links in the episode description. If you're a fan of A People's Theology, it would bring me no greater joy than if you gave the podcast a five-star rating and review. Tell me what you like about the podcast. Also, if you feel so inclined, please support my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Meninga. There are multiple tiers with wonderful rewards, including papers I write to even a book club. Enough of my rambling. Enjoy more inspiring and liberating theology. Today, I have Randy Woodley with me. Randy, uh, you do a lot of things in the world, uh, including publishing three books and articles and everything in your retirement year. You uh, have been a professor at Portland Seminary for a number of years, uh, and you, guys, you just decided to go out with a bang. I mean, that's pretty incredible how, much, how many words you wrote in that last year. That's pretty incredible. <laughs> I can't believe it. Words? Yeah, that's a good question. Now, I... Um... You know, it just kind of all came together in my final year there. Uh, I was 15 years at uh, Portland Seminary, and I wanted to do a few things before I left. Uh, <laughs> well, you did a few things. You wrote a few things. Yeah. So, yeah, it was it was all good. Uh, I'm really uh, happy that the final year went that way and um, kind of climbed the top of the academic mountain. I made tenure. I was a distinguished professor and I put out uh, a lot of stuff, and um, and so now I can sort of get back to doing what I really want to do. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, uh, including uh, writing a bunch of books and being an, a prolific scholar, you're also an activist, uh, and you do a lot of other things, including you're, you're also um, a Cherokee descendant, uh, and I'm just really excited. But you also, one of those books that you wrote uh, in this last year uh, is called Becoming Rooted, 100 Days of Reconnecting with Sacred Earth. I think it's an incredible book, uh, and I love the way you wrote it, too. It's just really, really beautifully written uh, and and also just so practical and wonderful. So I'm really excited to chat about it. But before I jump into that very first question about the book, I want to know a little bit more about you. So who is Randy Woodley to Randy Woodley? Yeah, well, that's a good good way to put it. Who am I to me? Still trying to figure that out after 66 <laughs> years. 
you know, I ask, I'm, I'm at the point now where I look back and go, now what, what was it that uh, people saw in me to, you know, ask me to lead and do these kinds of things? And, and do I still have those qualities? And, you know, I, I think for me, um, my life has been really about one thing, which has been trying to have integrity. Mm. And I remember I was in a, got time for a story. Um, I totally. I was, uh, always got time for yeah. stories. <laughs> I was building houses in uh, uh, Florida, Panama City, Florida, one win- or two winters. And there's a old uh, guy retired from the post office that was there. He was from Georgia and, and he was uh, dying of cancer. So he was at the end of his life. And uh, I used to go over and spend some time with him, talking with him. And, uh, and he said, Randy, I can tell you, you got what it takes. You're going to make it. This is, I was just a young man. I was probably what, 21, 22. And uh, he said, but let me tell you something. He said, when you get to the top, he said, you're going to look back. And he said, you're going to see one of two things. He says, you're either going to see the hands that lifted you up or the hands that you stepped on. And, you know, I always remembered that. I never want to look back and see any hands that I stepped on or people that I used to get where I wanted to be or um, being dishonest about anything. And so um, I've just tried to live my life with integrity and loyalty um, Mm -hmm. to my friends. Yeah. I love it. Well, that's probably one of my favorite answers to that question ever. Uh, Let's talk about becoming rooted. You are a scholar after all. And I know that this book is written in a very different way, right? It's not like a academic book or anything. And, And you certainly have written those. But I'm sure, you know, being a good scholar, you have done some really good research for the book. So I'm just curious, did anything in the research for the book, uh, and again, I know a lot of it's like meditations and reflections, so I don't know how much research went on, but I would imagine, you know, a little bit here and there. Was there anything that came up in that research for the book that you're like, didn't know that before? Huh, that's interesting. I should put that down. Well, there are a lot of things I didn't know about myself. Now, the difference between the way that I wrote this book and the way that I've written other books um, in the past is uh, huge. So you, you have to realize that, first of all, my project, mine and my wife's project, is basically to decolonize the Western world and indigenize them. That's our goal. Mm. And I also am very uh, deliberate to make sure that I find different ways to do that. And so, you know, I've challenged the book. I wrote a book called Shalom in the Community of Creation and Indigenous Vision, which I sort of became uh, known for uh, for a long time. And uh, I've written a children's book or two. They all have the sort of the same theme. Mm-hmm. Uh, some are more, much more theological. Some are much more in-depth and researched. This one was not researched academically at all. This mm-hmm. one was, well, I can't say that. I, I, I mean, flipping through and finding out like, you know, like what years climate change was the worst and, you know, those right, kinds right. of things. But, but um, this, I had to draw from myself and my own experiences and, uh, and my wife helped me a lot with that as well To, um, But um, that could be a hard be, thing for scholars to do, right. To kind of actually yeah, get into themselves. That, sometimes, you know, sometimes we just kind of think outside of ourselves so much and, you know, do all this research, but it's, you know, it's actually another challenge to really start diving into your own experiences and then putting that on paper. Yeah. So academia is just, is just completely enamored with itself. And it basically sees itself through a platonic dualistic lens. Mm -hmm. And that dualistic lens is the hallucinogen of Western society, right? Mm. It's the, um, the thing that tricks everybody into believing that like thinking something and doing something are different, um, mm-hmm. thinking theologically and doing theologically, you know, you can't be a theologian in a holistic way and not do your theology. Right. Mm-hmm. So I'm try I'm always trying to find ways to get around that, to help people see that this particular one, this book, I wanted to say something um, th- th- kind of like, I wanted to walk alongside people each day mm. and say, here's how you can begin to decolonize that mind and indigenize it. Right. Mm. And to, and, and that the, there's a meditation, very short hundred, right. 
100 days of reconnecting with sacred earth. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point. After each meditation is or reflection is an action point. And so I'm trying to get people to go out and connect with the earth, connect with their fellow uh, creatures, uh, their relatives at the end of each one so that they can break that dualism up. So this was a deliberate act on my part to get people in the practice of breaking that dualism up. I love it. I do want to talk a little bit more about what you mean by decolonizing, certainly like decolonizing the mind and then indigenizing. I find that very interesting. But before I do that, I want to get in, and, and before we kind of talk about some of the rest of the contents of the book, I love the way you wrote this. And, and you just kind of mentioned it before of like, you know, 100 days where you're kind of like accompanying in person uh, to do this work. Uh, and I just love how sort of devotionally it is. You know, it's just got a kind of a devotional vibe to it uh, with your daily meditations and reflections. Can you talk about why you wrote the book in this way uh, that reorients people uh, their relationship with the earth. I'm really curious about why this way, right? You've done so much great scholarship in the world. Why did you write a book this way? Right. And probably same reason I wrote children's books mm. because there are different people who respond differently, right? Mm. To, to the message. And uh, I think if I'm really being uh, honest with myself, it was also as much therapy for me as it was for everyone else for a chance for me to go back through my life and look at my experiences and, and uh, all the great things that have happened to me out in creation and, and uh, all the, like uh, what I would call miraculous and the mundane and everything else. This was a chance for me to sort of uh, look that over in my own life as well. Mm. So it was good for me too. But um, the main thing was to just help people, you know, you, you mentioned decolonization, which for me is just like peeling the layers of the lies of empire back, right? Mm. So that you can begin to see that those lies are all related. And um, and this was a simple way to do it, is to just get people to start thinking differently. Mm. Once you start thinking in a non-colonial pattern, uh, the whole sort of world opens up and you go, oh, wow. Yeah. It's like, you know, you know, red pill or blue pill. It's the Truman <laughs> Show. It's, yeah. you know, it's... You know, all of a sudden, the reality that has been set before me all my life is a false reality. It's one based on platonic dualism. It's one based on empire. And there's another alternative to that. And um, and for me, that's trying to get people in touch with their own indigeneity. Mm. Well, let's talk a little bit more about that. You, you just mentioned that for you, decolonizing is peeling back those layers of lies of empire. And and so I don't know if you want to say a little bit more about that, but I'm also really curious what it means to indigenize people, especially those of us who, you know, aren't capital I indigenous. Um, can, so can you talk a little bit about both of those concepts of decolonizing and and then also the, the sort of constructive approach of indigenizing? Yeah. So it's funny, you know, I do and I make the difference right in the in the I, I would really urge people don't skip the introduction. Mm. The introduction sort of sets the the plate. And I talk about big I, you know, capital I, indigenous people and uh, small I. But we're all indigenous from somewhere. Mm. We all have uh, indigeneity in our roots or we wouldn't have survived back, you know, way back when. That means we learn how to live with the land that we were on with another group of people and to sort of um, continue to sustain ourselves on that land. Um, the West has tried to make us forget about that, mm-hmm. uh, that there's a new way of doing things, a, a way that looks at the earth differently, a way that looks at people differently and commodifies and objectifies and, you know, all those kinds of things. And um, and those are all antithetical to indigenous values. And so here in America, I mean, there's other cultures and countries and that have great values around the world, other indigenous peoples and et cetera. But but here in America, I think our indigenous people still hold, uh, by and large, we're losing it too, but still hold our values mm-hmm. to uh, the values that will sustain us into the future. Mm-hmm. And the Western worldview will not sustain us into the mm-hmm. future. It's it's a failed experiment. And, uh, you know, I could go into great detail about that if you want, but but the experiment has failed. It's over. We need to end it and get on with something different. Mm-hmm. I mean, we even see that kind of come to a head of 
indigenous practices in California of wildfires and some of the wildfires that are just uncontrollable at this point in California, there's so much indigenous wisdom around like how to prevent these and how to stop some of these. And, and now I think we're starting like a lot of, you know, the Western world is starting to realize, Oh, maybe some of these, uh, the, these, this wisdom that has been around for a long time among some of these people groups who lived in California for a very, very, very long time. Maybe they actually have some wisdom around how to prevent some of these really destructive fa- um, forest fires. And that's just one small example of, uh, you know, of many, many examples uh, of how much the Western world has stripped away itself from some of this indigenous wisdom and why it's so important that um, some th- this, this indigenous wisdom remains and that we tell it and, and, and share it because ultimately it's what's going to sustain all of us. Yeah. So you're talking about what we call cool burn fires um, and, and not just in California, those were done all over practiced all over the United States basically. But, that's what my second children's book's about. In fact, it's uh, being oh, worked on right now. It's a it's called uh, the Harmony Tree Two Spared by Fire, and it's about um, wildfires. Uh, each one has a each children. I have a trilogy of the Harmony Tree, and each is about a sort of a, a ecological disasters that are taking place and the native solution to it. But it's done through story, right? Huh, and uh, and so it teaches about cool burn fires and. And uh, yeah, if we could start that practice again, um, we would have a lot less uh, damage and a lot less uh, people hurt Mm -hmm. uh, in the future. And so, um, yeah, we've got, you know, there's all kinds of ways that our elders have to to live with this land. You you think that people who've been on this land from time immemorial uh, might have something to teach people who have been on this land for just a few hundred years. Mm -hmm, Mm hmm. That's wonderful. You you mentioned very brief, briefly about how we're all indigenous to somewhere. And I'd love to dive into that a little bit more. Why is it important for people, regardless of, again, if they're kind of capital I indigenous, and you kind of mentioned the, the kind of difference between those two um, in that intro, why is it important for all people to understand that they are indigenous to somewhere, even people who come from, have colonizer ancestors. Why is it important for, you know, someone like myself um, and others who do have those kind those ancestors to still understand themselves as indigenous to somewhere? What, like, why is that so, so important? I love the way you open that up, but I'd love for you to dive into that a little bit more. Yeah. So we're all pretty much walking dirt, right? We have many of the same minerals and uh, salts and everything else as the soil does around us. Um, we're, we go back into it pretty easily. We decompose back into the soil. We're part of the earth. And, and, and earth is not just like universal earth. Earth is a particular place uh, mm-hmm. for some of us. Now, in our global, you know, transitional society, yeah, it's difficult for people, but we all sort of come from this um, different places. We learn how to survive. Um, we grew up in cultures that um, uh, maybe honored or didn't honor those kinds of things, but still it's not too late to begin to honor that relationship that we have as earth beings with the particular earth around us. And um, to uh, this is sort of the, the the project of colonialism, right? Is to say that, all dirt is is every is universal. Mm-hmm. Nothing in a particular place matters. As if um, Creator has not been has been absent from the whole world except for wherever white people have arrived, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, uh, if there's been interaction, if there's been thousands and thousands of years of of relationship with Creator and each other and those creatures around and and uh, even the the creatures in the soil that get used to certain peoples and and ways of doing things, then then that's a very special thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it also, to me, theologically points to a very special Creator who's able to sort of uh, maintain and not be threatened by the kind of diversity that we see all around the world. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, uh, diversity is a feature to all of this, not a, a like a flaw or an exception. It is, it is absolutely a feature. Absolutely. I mean, there's everything from, uh, you know, the smallest subatomic particles 
um, what we call quarks, all the way down to the mul- uh, up to the multiverse. It, there's the same principle: unity and diversity. Mm-hmm. It's there. There's there's nothing singular in the entire multiverse. Nothing, mm-hmm. not one thing. You know, when you when you get down to the even the atom, you know, and and then you look inside, and there are these quarks, you know, that, that float around and go back. But never are they by themselves. They they go in different groupings, but never by themselves. The mark of the universe is unity and diversity, and so that's sort of one of the keys to life is to understand that um, that we can all be different, and yet we can all be uh, you know together and. And work together and love together and have common mm-hmm. commonality and so um so yeah i'm you know i mean my first book was about diversity it's called uh living in color embracing god's passion for ethnic diversity mm-hmm. so uh, yeah i'm pretty pretty sold on that yeah yeah you talk about later in the book but i think this is still like a really good point to bring up at this point in the conversation but a couple of years ago i uh, chatted with uh, mark charles uh, and he talked at length about the many like kind of notable ways throughout history uh, that the american dream is actually an indigenous nightmare and so you talk about that phrase the you know american dream is an indigenous nightmare and we don't need to dive into all of that history right now. Uh, again, I, I think um, Mark does a really good job in that podcast episode about that. But I'm curious for you, what does the phrase the American dream is an indigenous nightmare means to you? Yeah. So the the American dream, so think about the history, right? So um, a land, uh, a people who came with such hubris that they thought they already had a right to the land. Mm. And that God was with them and not present among the people who were here. I mean, that's a lot of hubris. I mean, that, that, that's, that's like talk about narcissism, right? Yeah. It is like, and, and so, and then to act on that by violating your quote unquote Christian principles by uh, attempting genocide and, you know, ethnocide, ethnic cleansing and everything else it's just really evil. And so, you know, this, this dilemma, uh, when the pilgrims first came over of, they met people who were much more Christ-like without the knowledge of Christ than they were who had the knowledge of Christ. So this is, and, and this is something that's always sort of, um, been the barrier. It's like these damn Indians, you know, they're just so spiritual and they can't seem to get over the fact that we've learned to live with this land and uh, and that there are ways that you can live with it and ways you can't. And there are values that accompany living that have to be used. And, and I can tell you that the Western worldview produces almost, um, well, not almost, the opposite values of what it takes to live with the land. You know, mm. it's competition over cooperation. It's individualism over you know, corporateness, it's, you know, uh, exclusion over inclusion. It's all of these things that are produced by the Western worldview, because that's what empire likes. You know, this mm-hmm. is, this is what drives empire. Everybody gets their own piece, right? And we get empire gets everybody working for them to take everything from everybody else. That's not how life's meant to be lived. And that's not how creator meant for us to live. It was meant to be lived in harmony. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so the American dream is just all about those values that, um, the empire has given America. Mm -hmm. Later on in the book, you talk about like opening an invitation for an indigenous worldview. And I think this is like, like a question for myself that I've been wrestling with a lot. What is this worldview, this indigenous worldview, and how can non-indigenous people accept this worldview and live with this worldview, like actually live it, without colonizing it? So, yeah, what's the indigenous worldview, and how can somebody who's not indigenous accept it, live it out, without colonizing it? Can't. Mm. Um, Can't without losing power. Mm. So the whole... Western worldview uh, and, you know, basically whiteness is just uh, formed in America is about control. And there can't be love where there's control. Mm. There can't be harmony 
people are being controlled. There has to be a, a transfer of power, um, not for the sake of the indigenous people per se, although that's not a bad idea, but in order to save, in order to heal the people who have been in control. So I like that interview with uh, Dan Rather did with Mother Teresa a long time ago. And she said, he, Dan Rather, the you know famed reporter, 60-minute reporter, said to Mother Teresa, um, Mother Teresa, why did Jesus say the poor will always be with you? And she looked at him like he was a child and just said, well, because without the poor, the rich can't be saved. Mm. And there's something about the transference of power mm-hmm. that heals. I, I don't use that word saved. I use the word healed as a better, uh, it's a better word. There's something about the healing power of letting go of control. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's first step in AA. Well, just letting go of that control and, you know, it frees people. It saves people. I mean, we can look at, you know, all kinds of examples, but go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say the one of the reasons why I'm so interested in process theology, and we were kind of talking a little bit uh, about my background. Part of the reason is, you know, process theology puts so much of a question around power. There, there's such a critique or a question or an analysis of power that it's even willing to uh, question God's power, right? Like there's this questioning of whether or not God's omnipotent. And for me and just my life, the reason why I'm so interested in that is it has shaped me to you know, do what I can to release power, right? There's obviously moments where I'm not very good at it. But I think like really having this framework of process theology has really helped me in that journey. But yeah, I, I love that idea around like releasing power as a, as a critical, as a core component to accepting this invitation of the indigenous worldview. Yeah, and I've been watching this happen a lot. And I, I don't think it can happen without that. I mean, it, it takes some real uh, humbling to to do that. I know uh, what well, we talk about the the eye of the needle, right? The camel through the eye of the needle, mm-hmm. and the rich man, and that sort of thing. But yet, yeah, like my buddy Tom Ward uh, and that whole uh, open and relational theology, you know, are are now because of you know all these little branches, uh, process and decolonial, and all the rest, are are starting to see a clearer picture of who the creator really is Mm. and and that you know we we have this tendency to to make god in our image right and so colonialism has made this ugly god Mm -hmm. this ugly god if people are finally saying i don't want that god let's get rid of that god you know Mm. but what do we have left and and i think it's you know all these sort of new streams coming together open relational uh, indigenous theology Mm -hmm. you know um all kinds of decolonials and, you know, that are sort of saying, you know, well, none of us have the picture, but when we all can kind of come together and hear each other, Mm -hmm. then, and and nobody claim the exclusivity, you know, Mm -hmm. then we get a picture, a bigger picture of who this force is, who this creator is, who this one that, you know, we all look to in the universe is the one who's both the ultimate and the intimate. And that's how we find out more about, and and that means also looking through other faiths, by the way. Mm-hmm. And in the book, I wrote this book. This is not a particular Christian book. It's a book. It's a spiritual book written for anybody who's interested in spirituality. I, I know you don't talk about this so much in this book, but you do in, in some other books. But you just mentioned about kind of what you envision God actually being like. But then you you did mention really quickly about this colonized God, like the, the colonizer God. Can you talk a little bit more about what that kind of God looks like? You know, a lot of my listeners come from kind of more conservative Christianity uh, in, in that world. And so because of that, they probably grew up with, I'm guessing, the kind of God that you would describe as a colonizer God. Um, but for, for people who might, like, it, it might not make those connections between the kind of God that they grew up with and what you're describing as the colonizer God, I'd love to hear a little bit more about that. So, yeah, can you say a little bit more about what you mean by colonizer God? What are some of those attributes? What are those characteristics of that God? Yeah, so so the colonizer God has been uh, theologized throughout Europe. Most of our influences from white, old European men. Let's just take a really solid example of of the foolishness of the colonizer God. Mm. So 
we create these uh, institutional churches, so to speak, with heavy laden uh, burdens, financial burdens, bricks and mortar, um, you know, all these rules and, you know, all these kinds of things that basically fit right into that system. And they keep us what um, they're, they're deliberately meant from keeping us in relationship. Um, they can, you know, they do program really well, mm. right? Program, 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 just keep putting out the programs, right? But they actually, those programs most often keep us away from intimate relationships and vulnerability and spirituality. And mm. to me, uh, God is the most vulnerable being who exists. And, um, and so uh, when I see something that lacks the authenticity and vulnerability, I think, ah, that's a different God. That's the colonizer God, the one that says, chain yourself to this place and to these people and, but don't get to know them that well. And, uh, you know, make sure that you guys are constantly stuck with the building and you can't really do good around you because you're so busy paying off the building. And then you get this idea of the individualism where it's got to be just mostly my people in here doing stuff. And why can't we do stuff together? I mean, it just goes on and on and on. It's, the whole church system in America is built on colonization. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's been that way since the beginning and it's been perfected. Now it's in a much more industrial model. And um, that's not, that's not what Jesus tried to call community together for. Mm. That's not at all the purpose. It's the opposite. And so we've got to begin to abandon. Now there's always going to be people who want to continue to live and die in that model and good for them, you know, my thing for them is this, their churches, and they're always going to be sitting around going, you know, why can't we get any young people in this church, you know? <laughs> and uh, uh, I think the thing for them is like, sell that property, do something really good with it, um, and then buy yourself a little box church somewhere that you guys can all afford and just go to as a chapel for the rest of your lives until everybody dies out. And uh, um, that might be a way to sort of end that paradigm. Mm -hmm. But other than that, you know, even even the some of the best intended peoples have not figured out like how to get out from under this debt of buildings and programs and all the things that do. I like well Walter Brueggemann when he wrote the book Peace. He said, you know, every church should walk around this neighborhood, find out where Shalom has been broken, and then put all its money and time and effort into repairing Shalom in its neighborhood. Mm. Not a bad model. Not a bad model at all. This episode of A People's Theology is brought to you by United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities. Are you considering exploring your faith more deeply, or are you called to ministry but haven't found a seminary that is quite right for you? When you come to United, you join a community that is intentionally open, socially aware, and theologically adventurous. United's passion is equipping leaders to make real, lasting change in the world through their many different degree programs. Whether your vocation is in faith leadership, nonprofit leadership, academia, the arts, activism, or social entrepreneurship. And the best news is you don't have to uproot your life to attend seminary. United offers maximum flexibility to fit your schedule. Attend on campus or online, part-time or full-time. Their leading distance learning technology allows students to be active in the classroom and engaged with the United community. Want to learn more? Visit unitedseminary.edu forward slash a people's theology or click the link in the episode description and receive a $1,000 scholarship when you apply and are admitted. United Theological Seminary of the Twin Cities, training leaders to dismantle systems of oppression, care for the spiritual needs of a multi-faith world, and push the boundaries of theology. Later on in Becoming Rooted, you talk about loving spirit and loving earth. Uh, and it, I understand like why you have like two different chapters for each one. Uh, but I'm curious how spirit and earth are connected. Uh, and it seems like maybe if you love one, you're also loving the other. And so I'm just curious how you see loving earth and loving spirit being one. Yeah. So how do you define spirit? Jesus couldn't do it. Mm. Uh, he said, oh, you know, it's like the wind, you know, it's blowing here and there and everywhere else. N nobody can control it, by the way. Okay. It's out of control. And, and it's funny because what 
the colonized mind believe is chaos is actually what I would call creator's order. So when things are messy and people are not sure what to do and disaster is occurring and people have to just sort of like rely on each other, that's what it's about, right? Mm. But we call that chaos. It's like, no, we, we got to get through this thing so that we can get things back in order. You know, who the hell needs order? That kind of order. That kind of order is stunts our life. That kind of order makes us less of a human being. So we need the kind of order or disorder, if we will, chaos that uh, that actually creates needs and um, a relationship building and authenticity and and has us come to the end of ourselves so that we're there. We're actually there and not some you know, sort of uh, a model of ourselves that we try to maintain. Mm-hmm. And so spirit and earth, the earth is full of spirit. Everything on the earth is full of spirit. And, and you know, we like to, maybe because of extrinsic categorization, which is another obsession with the Western worldview, is, is to say, well, there's spirit in this and there's spirit in that and there's spirit. No, there is singular spirit in everything. Mm. And so when I connect to that animal, plant, person, I'm connecting with spirit. Mm. I think that dovetails really well to my next question. I think one of the most important ways or most important things that we need to do to resist climate change is to actually uh, reorient our relationship with the earth. And and many people have done that, uh, but certainly many more people need to. Uh, I don't think it's simply enough for people to just simply buy eco or buy the green products. I think we actually have to reorient our relationship with plants and animals and with the entire earth. Uh, I'm curious what your thoughts are about this kind of reorientation of our relationship with the earth, especially as it relates to climate change and the severity of climate change. Yeah. So climate change is happening as a result of of the West. Mm. Um, we call it the Anthropocene. Um, that means it used to be the Holocene, right? The, the, you know, it just was happening. Now it's human involvement. I don't call it the Anthropocene. I call it the Europatrocene. Mm. Because there was a particular European male mindset that basically created the Industrial Age uh, that, that has created... Uh, a, a disharmony um, and an imbalance on the earth and uh, human beings weren't meant to be uh, the kinds of uh, major consumers that we are now of energy. We were meant to be tertiary consumers, just like everything else. I mean, like the major, you know, you know what produces more energy on earth than anything? Uh, it's phytoplankton. And then uh, plankton actually are the number one consumer of energy and then you get, you know, uh, fish and other creatures and, uh, and you know, human beings are way down the list in terms of like naturally what is supposed to happen. Mm-hmm. But we've tried to uh, sort of usurp uh, the place of all the major energy consumers and we become one ourselves. And what's happening now is the earth is saying, if you don't stop, I'm going to get rid of you. And so um, you know, that's and, and that is order, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so when we see things that are resulting from climate change, like the floods and the fires and et cetera, it, 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 we say, oh, chaos, chaos, chaos. No, what we're really seeing is order. Chaos is is what we think is, um, you know, what we call homeostasis, right? The, that uh, the ability for everything to stay the same, we think that is uh, order. Mm. That's chaos. That is building against what we call entropy, right? Um, entropy says everything is, is slowing down and dying, and you have to build with change in mind. The number one law of nature is change, adaptation. Human beings have got to learn to adapt. And, and here's the key. Indigenous people have learned to adapt over the years. Now, we're susceptible to all the same kinds of uh, uh, Western ideas and idealisms as everyone else, but we're, there's still enough, I think, uh, traditional thinking people out there to uh, sort of 
um, begin to turn things around if people are are serious. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I got uh, the uh, I got off on that uh, sort of paradigm of mine about order, and I've forgotten uh, what your question was. So oh yeah, like uh, just what your thoughts are about like why it's so necessary for us to actually reorient our relationship with the Earth okay. as it relates to climate change, rather than just. I'm going to buy this eco product or this green product or whatever. Right. Well, I call that light bulbs and laundry lines, right? (laughs) So those are okay. I mean, I I think it's good to have integrity, right? Mm -hmm. Um, In your personal life and in your community and in sort of the big world picture and systems and everything else. Um, So, so, you know, buy good light bulbs and set out laundry lines and, you know, um, buy, you know, things that, that don't destroy the earth as much. But but don't stop there. I mean, it has to be uh, systemic as well. To me, the fastest way to to do this is to give Earth human rights, and mm-hmm. uh, so that I think that would be the fastest way to begin to change. But the thing is, is that the Earth itself uh, is hurting. Um, it's going to be all right in the long run. We may not be, but it will be. You know, if uh, if we can begin to see everything out there as our relatives rather than this idea of, you know, subject object. So like this, it goes back to platonic dualism Mm -hmm. and colonialism Uh, in platonic dualism. uh, I am the subject and everything else is the object. Everything material Mm -hmm. is the object. Mm -hmm. And so, um, and then that's been transferred in a colonial patterns of people are the object, people who are less women, you know, BIPOC, poor white people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, animals, uh, the soil, mm-hmm. um, the oceans, the rivers, the waters, those are all the other, those are all the objects. And so what we've learned to do is objectify the whole world. The indigenous worldview doesn't see things that way at all. Everything mm-hmm. is our relative. Mm-hmm. Everything. The trees, you know, the birds, the um, insects, you know, and other human beings, we're all related. And, you know, I'm sure somebody, you've probably had somebody in the program before who could tell you from a quantum physics perspective that that's true also. Mm-hmm. But, um, but it's also true, uh, not just metaphorically, but it's, it's true in how we think about things. If we don't begin to think about the earth as our relative and all these other creatures mm-hmm. as our relatives, we won't care enough about them to, um, to do our part. Mm-hmm. And so, and, and that's what human beings are made to do. That's sort of our number one instructions is to be earth caretakers. Mm-hmm. Like if you look in Genesis two fifteen and following, you know, it's mm-hmm. to, to tend the earth, to take care of it, to, um, to this really good, this tov miod earth, you know, that we have. And, uh, and that's our job. And if mm-hmm. we're not doing that in our particular place, um, then we're not doing our job as human beings. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, what my next questions are going to be, because it's essentially what my next question or or it segues really well into my next question. You talk about having this relationship with all the things of the earth and the earth itself to have a relationship where it's subject subject. Right. Um, and, And for so long, the Western world has thought about it as subject object. What are some practices that you would recommend that anybody could could do that starts to reorient the relationship so that we understand it as subject subject. Uh, like a year or so ago, I interviewed this person named Victoria Lors, and she has this book called Church of the Wild. It was actually also a broadleaf book. And she mentioned some practices that she does to reorient her relationship with the earth. And I'm not sure how much of those practices are actually um, influenced by indigenous practices, but I'm, sh- I'm sure like you may know of some indigenous practices that all people can maybe start to participate in and do so that they actually reorient their relationship with the earth. Because I don't think it's simply enough to, to read a book and then all of a sudden we have a reoriented relationship with the earth. I think we actually have to practice ourselves into that uh, and continually need to do that. So I'm curious, what are some of those practices that maybe you would recommend um, for yeah. people to do? Yeah. So let me just say generally that I wrote a hundred of them in that book. Right. <laughs> there's an action point at the end of every single meditation. So those are all different ways to get, and most of them are like, go outside and do this, you know, right. Like get, be outside and, and do something. But I, what I want to say is that 
I think um, as people who are spiritual, we need to begin to develop our own ceremonies. Um, if if our culture is not providing those for us, then we sort of have to do not only maybe our own personal ceremonies, but even our, our uh, uh, a gang of friends who can do them together so that we can actually, I guess the word perform isn't really the word I'm looking for, but we can actually just do the things that that acknowledge our spirituality and our relationship to the earth. Now, our uh, ancestors from all over have done that forever. You know, Norse people, Celtic people, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and, and the thing is, people will go, oh, well, that's paganism. You know, it's like, well, you know, um, I'm, I'm a little bit uh, um, skeptic of the uh, Roman Catholic Church and, and how it treated other cultures. <laughs> because I understand how it treated our native culture. We were all demon worshipers, devil lovers, mm -hmm. you know, um, not spiritual, no, ignorant of God. Nothing could be farther than the truth. And I wonder if that's maybe uh, at least partially true in all the cultures that the church condemned as pagan along the way. But I'm sure even uh, without going deep into paganism, if you will, there are things in those cultures that connect people to the earth in a good way. And mm -hmm. so um, so people have their own sort of ethnicities to draw from. Mm -hmm. And then they also can just sort of like um, figure stuff out. Don't appropriate the native stuff unless you've been given permission. Mm -hmm. um, that's not cool. But uh, but, you know, find ways to do it yourself. Maybe just you and your family. Um, or you and your family and friends, and you come together once a month and you have a ceremony. Mm -hmm. I think that 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 we were made ceremony is so special. We were made to be a part of it. Um, mm -hmm. it It makes us number one stop and think about life is sacred, and that there is these connections. But it also puts us in a place where sort of time stands still. Mm -hmm. It creates the sacred place where creator sort of inhabits that place. And, um, and then we uh, understand that as being sacred. And so, and then it can be passed on generationally. So yeah, basically a uh, ceremony. That's, that's my answer. Love it. Love it. In the last chapter of the book, you talk about the seventh, the seventh generation. And for those who are unfamiliar, can you talk a little bit about what the seventh generation is and why we should love the seventh generation yeah so we have this saying in um in a lot of native tribes that with every decision you make you have to consider the consequences for the next seven generations mm. and so basically we're talking about the future our you know seven generations down uh, and i'm i'm not sure why seven is always used um <laughs> but uh but think about that. It's like, I'm not making decisions for myself. I'm not even making decisions just for my grandchildren. I'm making decisions for my grandchildren's grandchildren. Mm. And so that causes us to think more deeply uh, with more humility about everything that we do. And uh, so, so that's why, that's what that means. Yeah. Second to last question, Randy, how do you hope becoming rooted inspires and liberates its readers? The tagline of my podcast, by the way, is inspire, exploring, expiring, and liberating theology. So uh, love to tie it in. Yeah. How, how do you hope becoming rooted inspires and liberates its readers? Well, I'm, I was really fortunate in that uh, we, we sort of did an online reading for the first hundred days mm. um, and uh, we did it together on Facebook and uh, we ended on Earth Day, on the hundredth oh, wow. day, and we had a gathering out here on Earth Day. And so, but I was really fortunate into I was able to get a lot of feedback along the way from people and how it was affecting them and changing their lives. And you know, I was, uh, which is pretty rare for an author to to have access to all that right away. Mm -hmm. Right. So I was really pleased, and I I know I'm still hearing from people how this book is changing their lives and their uh, the way they look at life and you know all those kinds of things uh, I, I heard the same thing with braiding sweetgrass by the way if, if you've mm. read that or mm -hmm. thought about mm -hmm. that so, um it's just a i think hearing a sort of an insider's voice on um who bridges uh the two worlds on how you can have access into this 
more indigenous, I don't know if we call it more spiritual world, but maybe a recognition of of uh, a wider sort of uh, spirituality is really something people are looking for. I mean, mm-hmm. and and it is, I mean, I, I don't want to sound egotistical, but I, I can just tell you from people's reports that it is inspiring them and it is changing their lives. And, and uh, I think the success of this book has been uh, greater than anything else I've ever written. So I'm just really happy with uh, how people are taking it, reading it. And, and I'll get the comment and I feel like you're here with me, which Mm -hmm. is exactly why, what I wanted Mm -hmm. was to wanted this book to, for people to feel like that I'm just there with them as they're doing this. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. Wonderful. Uh, last question. How can listeners get connected to you and your work? And where uh, can they buy the book and where should they buy the book? Yeah. So you can buy the book anywhere. Um, and if, uh, you know, and I know there's a lot of people don't want to buy from Amazon, but you can at least go to my Randy Woodley page on Amazon and you can see all my books there. Um, the The other two I wrote this year, Indigenous Theology in the Western Worldview. And then the other one is uh, Mission in the Cult of Other a uh, closer look so you can go there and then if you decide to buy it somewhere else that's fine uh if you see me speaking around i usually carry my books with me yeah um you can connect with us at elahe.org which is e-l-o-h-e-h.org elahe is our organization we my wife and i run uh elahe indigenous center for earth justice and elahe farm and seeds and so we demonstrate um what we're doing we're we're not just writing about it. We're not just thinking about and yakking around about it, but we actually do it. We have community out here. We, um, we have ceremony out here. We have learning center out here. Um, we have a farm, a sustainable, uh, much sustainable, not completely sustainable farm. And, uh, and we're trying to, you know, basically what we do is invite people here, uh, over extended weekends to experience, um, the kinds of things that we talk about mm. and it's an immersive experience, so to speak. So, so you can find out more about that at uh, eloheh.org. Lovely. I will be sure to include that link in the episode description. Well, Randy, thank you so much for chatting a little bit more about becoming rooted. I, I just think it's incredible. Over the last couple of years, I've kind of made that shift in my life where I recognize, you know, I'm going to do what I can, you know, when it comes to buying certain products in my life and all of that when it comes to climate change. Um, But I think more than anything, the thing that I really need to do is actually reorient my relationship with the earth and uh, its inhabitants. And so uh, that that has been such an important piece uh, to my journey. And it's something that I'm very committed to. Um, It's not something I'm perfect at, certainly. It's not something I've figured out at all, but it is a commitment that I've made in my life. And so uh, thank you for writing this book. I think it's such a great introduction for people to also, um, you know, get themselves to that kind of commitment to actually reorient their relationship with the earth. So thank you so much for chatting more about it. Yeah. And we don't need to be perfect at it. We just need to be on the journey. That's right. That's right. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks, Mason. If you would like to connect with Randy and his work, you can find links in the episode description. Thank you again for listening to another episode of A People's Theology. If you liked what you heard, please give the podcast a five-star rating and review. Also, please support the podcast at my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Mason Menega. And remember, friends, go and be the theology to the world that inspires and liberates.